0: Listener supported
1: WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Monday, October 3rd. Well, the Supreme Court began hearing cases for its new term today, October 3rd at 10 a.m., first Monday in October, that's when they start. So the court started with the first of two oral arguments as history was made as Judge Katanji Brown Jackson took the bench for the first time. And while we won't hear about the outcome of those cases until maybe mid-June or so, on the docket this term are some cases that could have a big impact on education, voting rights, Immigration, affirmative action. If you thought last term was big because of abortion rights, well, I don't know if they can top that, but these things are huge. I've especially got my eye on the voting rights case, uh, a couple of them. So joining me now to discuss the cases before the court this term, as well as her new book on the women who fought back on the Trump administration's policies, is Dahlia Lithwick, senior legal correspondent at Slate host of their podcast, Amicus, and the new book is called Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. Dahlia, always great to have you. Welcome back to WNYC.
0: Thanks for having me back, Brian.
1: Let's start before we get to the book with some of the cases before the Supreme Court this term. There's Merrill versus Milligan, which is after the 2020 census, Alabama created a redistricting plan for its U.S. House of Representatives uh, seats, with one district being majority black. Several organizations challenged the map, saying the state had packed black voters into a single district illegally in violation of the Voting Rights Act. So, uh uh-oh, the Supreme Court already undid part of the Voting Rights Act a few years ago. Is Alabama going after the rest?
0: I think so. I think that's, Uh, pretty clearly what's going to happen. As you said, this was a racial gerrymander, probably in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Folks will recall that uh, in Shelby County, uh, the court did away with Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Ostensibly, Section 2 was left to enforce uh, voting rights uh, for racial gerrymanders, but Uh, The court kind of took a whack at that two terms ago in Brnovich, and this feels like one last whack. Uh, And it's a a, a pretty worrisome case, uh, not only because the court has already weighed in in this case, but it really does suggest that going forward, if you are minority voters and have been sort of packed and cracked, as we see Black voters here in Alabama, you're really not going to have any federal remedy under the Voting Rights Act.
1: Does this also have to do with the really threatening proposition that something that a state legislature does isn't even reviewable by the state courts under that state's constitution?
0: You're exactly right. That's the other big big voting rights case it's called Moore versus Harper and it also involves a gerrymander in this case a a political gerrymander and I think Brian it's safe to say it is the biggest case that nobody could quite wrap their head around because here the proposition is that the North Carolina legislature having done another just kind of shocking unconscionable gerrymander Gets a map from the state Supreme Court saying, nope, you got to do this. This is the way to do it. And they make exactly the claim you just announced, which is, nope, under the federal constitution, state legislatures have a plenary power to do essentially anything. To do with elections. That includes if they want to do vote purging, if they want to change the vote by mail policy, up to and including, and this is the really worrisome part, if they just decide that they want to throw out the state, the slate of electors, and put in a new bunch of electors, kind of what we saw Donald Trump and John Eastman urging in the 2020 election in Mm -hmm. Wisconsin and in uh, Georgia. So, yes, if the court, which already has four. Uh, justices who've signaled interest in this doctrine, if this independent state legislature doctrine is blessed by the court in Moore v. Harper, which is upcoming, then yes, you are going to have no way for a state Supreme Court under state constitutional law to do anything to check a state legislature. Yeah,
1: that's the one that really freaks me out, because if the Supreme Court (laughs) upholds that idea in this case, Then hello, January 6th, as you were just saying, because it's the same theory that Trump wanted to use or may want to use in the future or his party might to allow legislatures to determine who gets the state's electoral votes, not an independent vote counting agency like the state secretaries of state. Or I wonder how how far you think this could potentially go if the Supreme Court gives state legislatures that power in voting cases, um, would the next steps be to say the whole judicial branch doesn't matter? Like every state's state constitution doesn't matter if the legislature, you know, through the whims of a right-wing majority at that moment or something like that, passes a law that runs counter to the state's own constitution, that, uh, that that would stand?
0: And that's essentially the posture of the North Carolina legislature in Moore. Essentially, what they are saying is we don't care that the state Supreme Court under the state constitution says that we have violated the state constitution. There's no check on us. And I think the amicus briefs in this case run the gamut. There are iterations of this theory that to use your constitutional parlance, freak me out a little bit less. But Mm -hmm. yes, there are big, big swings, including John Eastman, again, who was the one who was pushing a version of this theory in 2021 that essentially say there is nothing the governor can do. There is nothing the state Supreme Court can do. Uh, This is uncheckable, unreviewable power. And I think you're exactly right. In some sense, this is January 6th with the imprimatur of black robes, and it really does stand rooted in almost no doctrine, almost no history. It's been kind of magicked up by a certain strain of conservative legal thinkers, but it doesn't stand solidly in any doctrine.
1: And, of course, the point of constitutions, one point of constitutions, is to protect minority rights of all kinds, right, because democracy doesn't just mean uh, tyranny of the majority, tyranny of the 50% plus one. It means there are some underlying democratic norms that constitutions are supposed to uh, protect. In terms of protecting individuals from majority sentiments, in terms of intervi- uh, protecting all kinds of groups of minorities, not just racial, uh, but certainly we have that particular dark history in this country of racial discrimination, but all kinds of political minorities from the tyranny of major- of the majority. And so if constitutions become sidelined by the U.S. Supreme Court, of all things, um, that would well that would really fundamentally change our country do you think that the court has any interest in holding up the power of the judicial branch in alabama and north carolina because it's the judicial branch you know if it delegitimizes the judicial branch at the state level then it by implication is saying well the Supreme Court itself shouldn't have power over the U.S. Congress?
0: If we were in normal times, Brian, I would tell you the answer to that is emphatically yes, right? That the court understands not just that the Article Three federal judiciary, but state supreme courts are essential to preserving the rule of law. And there's a brief in this case, an amicus brief in uh, the one we're talking about, Moore versus Harper, Har- I'm sorry, Harper, this independent state legislature case from all of the chief justices of all the state Supreme Courts who are not apt to involve themselves in this kind of case and certainly not to write this kind of brief, essentially making the argument that you're making about kneecapping state. Supreme Courts. But I think we're in a very strange moment with the current Supreme Court, where all of the breaking mechanisms that I could have thought of a year ago that would have inclined them to say, hey, this is really dangerous, both for the integrity and the reputation of courts themselves or for the rule of law writ large. I see very little evidence that that is currently operative in how the Supreme Court is doing its business.
1: Let's move on, (laughs) taking a deep breath, to another big case that the Supreme Court is going to hear this term, students for fair admissions versus Harvard, about whether colleges and universities can use race as a factor in admissions. And this one, kind of like Roe, tell me if I'm exaggerating this, kind of like Roe, challenges a very long precedent about how race can be used as a factor in college admissions that was established by the Supreme Court itself?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, very recently, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg made comments to the effect that Nobody's going to disturb this. This was a kind of seminal decision in a case called Grutter versus Bollinger. And the court essentially said that you can use race as a factor in admissions in higher education because there is this demanding interest in diversity in the classroom. And we thought that was settled 20 years ago. Uh, But here we are revisiting what everyone thought was settled precedent. In some ways, I think your point is exactly correct, which is this is very much like Roe. This is very much like some of the religion cases we saw last year. This is very much uh, like the EPA case we saw last year, where we thought the doctrine was settled, that stare decisis meant something. And yet the absence of Anthony Kennedy Who decided that case, Sandra Day O'Connor, and the stepping in of uh, three Trump appointed justices means that anything we thought was settled doctrine, even for purposes of going forward for schools figuring out their own admission policies, is now kind of all tossed up in the air and up for grabs. So it's not just, as you say, a question about race, which is a, a big theme undergirding a lot of the cases this term. It's also really in a deep existential way a case about precedent and mm-hmm. reversing precedent just because the composition of the court has changed.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard that this that the plaintiffs are hanging their argument on Brown versus Board of Education, of all things, which was Obviously, the landmark case that outlawed racial segregation in public schools. And they're using Brown versus Board um, as the argument against affirmative action because they're saying the implication of Brown is that you can't take race into account in any way, including for inclusion.
0: And it's a theme that goes not just through these cases, but through some of the voting rights cases, the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is also being challenged. And that through line you've just described is this command now from conservative legal movement that we be race-neutral, utterly and perfectly race-blind on every issue. And that means wiping away the very reason we have the 14th Amendment, the reason uh, we have the Voting Rights Act, Right, all of this work was done to, in effect, create a, a more fair to address historic, you know, centuries of historic racial oppression, and now the argument is being advanced that that itself is discrimination on the basis of race. And so it is a through line through a whole bunch of these cases, and maybe we're stopping to say that one of the chief architects of this argument that the Constitution demands, even when we are going to try to fix and account for, you know, crippling, crippling efforts to um, raise up one race over another. Even that, says Chief Justice John Roberts, the court's moderate, probably left moderate justice now, his argument in a line of cases that the way we get beyond race is to get beyond race. And that demands perfect neutrality, even when we are trying to repair historic wrongs.
1: All right. And there are other cases we could get into. It's obviously, listeners, if have been listening to this last stretch of conversation, going to be another momentous term at the United States Supreme Court. Dahlia Lithwick, who covers it for Slate, is one of the great Supreme Court watchers of our time. She also does the Amicus podcast for Slate. And she's written a book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, The first contemporary woman lawyer you write about in the book is Sally Yates, a name some of our listeners will remember, the acting attorney general of the United States at the time, who, during her brief tenure, staying on with the Trump administration after Obama, refused to sign off on the Muslim travel ban. And you write that she was the first casualty in Donald Trump's war on the Constitution. So take us back to January 2017 and tell us why you put it that way.
0: I love Sally Yates as an avatar of standing up for not just the rule of law, which she did, but standing up for the Justice Department as an institution. And the book so very firmly roots itself in people who protect institutions, because I think that it's very easy to be kind of nihilist and cynical about institutions. So I start with Sally Yates because she was supposed to be the acting attorney general until Jeff Sessions uh, was confirmed and seated. She thought it was going to be pretty low key, not a very intense time. And then without vetting it, uh, without getting a chance to see it, uh, Sally Yates found out about the travel ban that uh, excluded travel from majority Muslim countries the way we all did on our phones, Uh, Mm. had no idea it was coming. And then having thought really carefully about whether she would let the imprimatur of the Justice Department, go into court and defend the ban. She determined, I can't. She thought it was rooted in religious animus, that it violated due process. And she made a statement to that effect and was summarily fired. So I use Sally Yates both as emblematic of the ways in which I think a lot of women were very quick to say, I'm going to stand for the rule of law. I'm not going to get folded into this administration and weaponized to do whatever it wants. But maybe more urgently, because I think a lot more people should have done what Sally Yates did, uh, rather than wait to get fired or, you know, become uh, best-selling authors who reveal afterwards hmm. uh, that they really had questions. I like that she just took it uh, and took the blow and became, in my view, uh, a singular and all too rare example of somebody who just said, "I am not going to let the rule of law crumble
1: on my watch." Sally Yates. Moving on, as the Supreme Court hears the arguments for the Alabama redistricting case that uh, we were talking about before, you write about Stacey Abrams in your book, who rose to national prominence, of course, for her efforts to protect the voting rights for Georgians, and as you write, may well have been what won the Senate for Democrats in 2020. And of course, Stacey Abrams was not on the ballot for the Senate in 2020. So tell us why you featured her in this book on women in the law.
0: I love the bookend of uh, opening with Sally Yates, who's a white woman from Georgia, who's very much an establishment figure. And the book ends with Stacey Abrams, a black woman also in Georgia, who's been working in many senses outside the system to organize, to register voters, to get them to understand uh, that this is a team effort. And so I end with um, Stacey Abrams because I think that one of the things I realized as I worked my way through this book is that you can win all the lawsuits in the world. But if you're not organizing, if you're not doing fundamentally what I think of as democracy repair work, you're going to end up losing. And so Stacey Abrams closes the book because I think she is someone who, while a meticulous lawyer, also just took a look at system failures long before any of us had names for some of the voter suppression she dealt with in her own gubernatorial run, uh, efforts by the state to, you know, close minority precincts or to uh, do other things to purge voters off the voter rolls. And I think that she gave a name to it and a face to it before a lot of us knew it was coming. And so for me, I close with her because she's doing with this army of Black and brown women and people across the country who have really just by the force of her personality and her argument come to recognize that it's not just one lawsuit and it's not just one election, that this is deep, deep system reform that is going to take decades. And again, that it involves, you know, Stacey Abrams, who is always careful to say, it's not me. I am an avatar for tens of thousands of women who are doing the work. And that's precisely the place I think we need to be going into the midterms and beyond.
1: To close, let me go back to one thing you referred to in an earlier answer, Um, but read something you write to that effect in the book. You wrote, we spent too many of the Trump years believing that Robert Mueller, then Adam Schiff, then Jamie Raskin, and then someone else would single-handedly save us in a blaze of cowboyish heroism. But in so doing... We often lost track of the everyday heroes in our midst, unquote. And, you know, we're in the blue Northeast here with most of our listeners. And many of our Democratic listeners over the years have voiced their dismay at the justice system and why it hasn't been able to stop Trump then and even now that he's out of office. So I'm curious what you hope your book will highlight in that respect and if we should be more optimistic uh, about justice and in, in in the respect of being pro democracy than we are,
0: I, I mean my slightly dispiriting answer, and maybe this goes back to you know the the spooky conversation we had up top about the independent state legislature doctrine is that there isn't a second thing. (laughs) There isn't something that isn't the rule of law and the courts. Uh, I fear that if the rule of law falls away, if the justice system falls away, then we're left fighting on the streets and I can't be for that. And I guess the other coda to that, and this is really maybe the deep answer to your question, is that I think we forget how many wins we've had. Uh, Every single chapter of this book is about a really signally important win, that it's easy to gloss over and say, oh, you know, God, it's taking so long with Merrick Garland. Why isn't this working? The law is too slow. But I think we forget to celebrate our wins and to understand that those wins may take a long time. They may happen in obscurity. But I just don't think there's a plan B other than the rule of law. And so I'm willing to lash myself to plan A with the belief that if good, good people each pick up an oar and row, we can still prevail using the rule of law
1: can't even believe we're having this conversation, is there an alternative to the rule of law in the United States? But there we leave it with Dahlia Lithwick, senior legal correspondent at Slate, host of their podcast, Amicus. The new book is Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. Dahlia, thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me.